Hey, it's Joyce. Every week, I have the chance to chat with an interesting, inspiring human and to share that conversation with you. Join me as I walk and talk with entrepreneurs, adventurers, and all sorts of people who are working hard to empower women and make the world a better place. Now listen, this is not some highly polished, formally produced podcast. It's just two humans out for a walk with the chance to learn from each other. So lace up your sneakers, head out the door, and join us. Welcome, everyone, to today's Walk and Talk, where our guest is Tori Brown. Tori is a registered dietitian. Gosh, I sometimes struggle over that word. She has a background in clinical nutrition and behavior change strategies. Tori was previously at Temple University Hospital for six years, counseling patients pre- and post-bariatric surgery, the classic weight loss surgery, and today she works to optimize nutrition programs and product offerings for organizations, including our current partner, Nutrisystem. So we're going to talk about so many things, and we're going to talk really fast because Tori has so much wisdom to share, and we only have 30 minutes to do it. So here we go. Welcome, Tori. Hi, Joyce. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with this group. So Tori and I have had a couple of conversations before today or before this moment, and we immediately get into all of the big questions around nutrition and weight loss and how we fuel our bodies well and all the things. Uh, But before we do that, Tori, can you do me a favor and explain a little bit the difference between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist? Absolutely. And Joyce, I'm so happy you put this question out there, too, as I mentioned before. So just a little bit of a background for anyone who may not be familiar. Uh, My credential is a registered and licensed dietitian. And so essentially what the difference between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist is schooling and state regulations. So in a nutshell, someone who gets a bachelor's degree in something health related, say they went for Uh, biology, they could technically then train and become a nutritionist. As a dietitian, you have to do very structured classes focused on medical nutrition therapy, as well as a postgraduate program called a dietetic internship. And we also have to sit for a board exam. So at the end of the day, it's not to say nutritionists aren't a great resource, but registered dietitians are a little bit more vetted in terms of higher level nutrition Uh, therapy and things like that. So just really about the schooling and the training that goes with it. So it doesn't necessarily mean when people are out there and they see dietitian after somebody's name as their credential, it doesn't mean that this is a person focused on diets in the traditional sense. And I just want to, I hate when people kind of get that inference because it's just not so. It just relates to the level of education from a pretty technical standpoint around nutrition and physiology and all the things, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's a great point too, Joyce. And a lot of people associate that term dietitian with, oh, okay, I'm going to go on a diet. The funny thing when you think about that word diet, though, we all follow a diet. A diet is not anything beyond what we eat. A diet is just our day-to-day eating habits. So a diet, we've come to, you know, socially accept the the term diet as weight loss eating pattern, but really everyone has a diet that we eat. So 
focus just on weight loss. We focus in so many specialty areas, even for, you know, sometimes dietitians are working to help someone gain weight, you know, in situations like chemotherapy or, you know, other types of illnesses. So really dietitians practice, you know, and, and counsel on all types of diet, not just weight loss. Do you have any idea when it was kind of in our culture and history that this idea of uh, diet got sort of co-opted by weight loss? Where did that come from? Do you know? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's really hard to isolate it to one specific time frame or, you know, event that has happened. But a lot of nutrition regulation and guidelines, as we know them today, started in a post-war era. So, you know, lo even looking back to the food that we were feeding soldiers in, in World War II and, and things of that nature, that's really when nutrition protocols and standards and the emergence of dietitians became more popular. As far as like specifically weight loss, we saw a big emergence of that in the 80s when, uh, you know, fitness, not necessarily weight loss focus, but a lot of that fitness focus in the 80s, a lot of that diet stuff started to pop up. And I would really say between the 80s and early 2000s is when we saw, you know, so many diets popping up and every commercial you saw was about weight loss. Mm -hmm. It really was a, you know, it, it took time to develop into that. But really in the 80s is when we started to see like some of that fitness influence. So I don't know that I've ever shared this on a walk and talk, uh, just I don't know that I've had occasion, but I was put on my first formal diet when I was eight years old. So there you have it, which was um, uh, the late 70s, Yeah, mid-70s. So, so yeah, I, I remember and, it vividly. Yeah, and even that, that's just a great example of like, you know, I'm saying 80s, 90s, yeah, that's when we saw yeah. diet culture ramp up, but it already was existing before then. And funny enough, Joyce, you know, I remember being a kid and following the Scarsdale diet with my mom. Now, I don't think she intentionally, we, all our, our parents did the best they could with the knowledge they had. It wasn't an intentional, hey, let's do this unhealthy Thing. Um, <laughs> or a kid on a diet, and, you know, right, 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 screw, um, up our, screw up our kids' relationship with food. Right. Let's do that. But that, was the, that was the culture, that, you know, every, it was just, if you weren't focusing on a diet, like you weren't doing the right thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly when, but, you and know, what, we can see it started a long time ago. And what brought you to this path? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually come from a family of dietitians, I will say. I'm one of four dietitians in my family. Uh, oh my gosh, like my, now I just, wait, Tori, now I just want to skip ahead because now I want to know what Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner looks like in your house. Like, does everybody oh, try to outdo one another with like cooking the most delicious and most nutritious meal and dish? You know what? <laughs> Yes and no. I will say most of the dietitians in my family actually are the bakers, funny enough. So we're the ones who kind of bring like the sweets and the pies. And I think that's because we have a love for food science and baking really, really gets into mm. that food science element that cooking sometimes doesn't. But yes, I will say when we have all of us there, there's a great spread of there, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a mix of everything. It's not just veggies, though. It's veggies. We got good stuff, Italian food. I come from a big Italian family, so really no no shortage of food at our holidays, mm -hmm. that's for sure. 
Um, so yes, I come from a family of dietitians, my older sister and aunt included. I then became a dietitian, and then my younger uh, cousin followed in our footsteps as well. So I like to say it's in the family, but really I went to college knowing in my gut that I wanted to do something within the medical field, but didn't know exactly what. And I thought that I, for a while, wanted to be a nurse. And I realized quickly in those classes that wasn't for me. And so sitting in that first Nutrition 101 class, I remember just absolutely falling in love with the science. Um, I just loved it. And so it was an easy choice, my sister having just gone through it, you know, a couple of years before me. She was a great resource to ask everything, you know, how do I become a dietitian? What do I need to do? So that was really my start in the nutrition field and never looked back. So let's talk a little bit, if we can, about what people have been typically calling diet culture. And I don't even know where that phrase came from, right, just a couple of years ago, but it's something that's popped up and people have really latched onto. And something that I say uh, often and perplexes me is we have never known as much as we know right now about what it takes to fuel our bodies well. Now that's not to say we know everything, right? This science keeps evolving, everything keeps evolving. But you compare what we knew years ago to what we know know now, we know more. So how is it that we are getting less healthy and less well as a society? Yeah, you know, I'm just, I think that's the, uh, Tori, I, uh, yeah, I'm just gonna start with a the million dollar question, question, you know, course, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is the million dollar question, but you know, I'll take my stab at it as best I can, but I obviously that's not an easy question to answer. And if I could, no, I would be course. a billionaire, but you know, I think we often look at food and villainize certain foods and look to, that's the first thing that oftentimes we look to when we see the health of a population maybe isn't where it, we want it to be, or maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's declining. And in this case, talking about weight, that, you know, people are looking to what foods are people eating. So oftentimes we get certain food groups that are villainized, like don't eat fast food, don't eat that, don't eat that. But it comes back to a bigger picture. It's not, yeah, of course, what you put in your body is very important. But there are other factors, too, like, you know, technology. Um, we're way, way less active than we ever were, you know, looking years ago. Uh, just tech and TVs and screen time and stress levels and everything has seemed to kind of get a little bit more intense <laughs> over, you know, the past couple of years, especially coming off of COVID. But uh, and so all of those things impact people, not just what we're putting in our bodies when it comes to food. Uh, and going back to your question about diet culture, really diet culture explains this mentality that especially Americans have of needing that next newest best diet. I want that. I want to get beach body ready. I'm going to do a one week cleanse before I go on this trip. That fluctuation of you know, inconsistencies and in how you're treating your body and what you're putting in your body, you know, yeah, you could go on a, on a crash diet for a week and maybe lose weight, but you're probably not going to feel that great after. So in my opinion, that's a long-winded way to say, mm -hmm. in my opinion, people are overlooking some of these other factors that go into our health, like sleep and stress levels and screen time that we're putting all the onus back on food when it's not the only factor here. So I think we're almost looking for a solution within something and ignoring these other factors that are out there too. So 
that's that's my long-winded explanation of diet culture and answering your question as best as I can. But and no. I guess when it comes, we talked a little bit about data yesterday, Joyce. You know, health data, things like Fitbits and Apple Watches. Sometimes more information can be harmful for people, and it all comes back to individually what works for you, what makes you feel good, and what doesn't. That that data, you know, tracking walks like this community does. I assume everyone here finds that a positive habit for them or a positive action to take and helps them build upon other healthy habits. Some people may not feel that way. So it all comes back to individualizing how you're treating your body, what you're eating, and, and even your exercise routines too. So interesting to uh, speak with a established experienced dietitian who says, it's not all about diet. <laughs> <laughs> right like we have we have to start really looking i think at more of a holistic question or a holistic answer or a holistic system i don't even know what quite the word i have for that is um that leads me to something that you mentioned in kind of our um our pregame kind of when we were hanging out in the green room before we went live around intuitive eating which is uh, a phrase that I think probably most people have heard, or at least it's crossed their radar. Um, can you explain a little bit about what, what you meant by that when you said it and what people mean by that? Absolutely. This is a, a term that's you know, popped up in, in popularity. We've heard more of it over the past couple of years, but it's actually something that's existed for quite a while. There's a, a book called Intuitive Eating written by a dietitian, Evelyn Triboli, and I can't remember her co-author, but I'll get that information for you. It's a great read. And so the idea of intuitive eating is that we eat, to, we, we eat and listen to our body in the eating process. So it starts by paying attention to your hunger and fullness cues. So an example I used to always use when I was counseling patients is just a scale of zero to 10. Zero being you're completely empty, you're about to pass out, you're so hungry. A 10 being you're overly full, you feel like you're going to get sick. You really don't want to wait till you're at a zero to eat, till you're at that overly ravenous point. And that's really the start of intuitive eating, is even to the point of when you're hungry, your body's telling you you need to eat, so you need to eat something. And then even further, as you get into your meal, paying attention to being present in that experience rather than, you know, scarfing your meal down while you're multitasking and you're working, it's not going to give you the, the most satisfying experience. So paying attention to the texture, the taste, the flavor, the temperature, all of these things as you're eating your meal. Now, that sounds a little intense. You may think like, gosh, I can't, I don't know what to look for. But just start starting small by saying, how do I enjoy this flavor? You know, and being more present in that eating experience is going to allow you to stop when you feel more satisfied and feel like you have a better relationship with food. Um, and, and a lot of people, a lot of, especially women that I've worked with in the past have described, I feel this sense of uh, lack of control in my eating. And that would be my first tip is don't wait till you're at a zero to eat. Wait, when you're at that three or four on the scale, maybe you're starting to get a little rumble in your stomach. That's your cue to start thinking what I need to eat, because when we get to that zero, we're going to just we tend to go a little bit overboard and we eat quickly and don't pay attention. And then that's when we find ourselves being like, did I even eat lunch today? I don't feel satisfied. 
So there's a lot more that goes into intuitive eating, but that's just a scratching the surface explanation. Um, but worth something that's worth, there's even an intuitive eating workbook if this idea is resonating with anyone. Um, so it's definitely something that you can implement into your lifestyle. And there's a lot of guidelines on it out there. And going a little bit deeper along the path, uh, I always reflect on uh, the eating habits of my daughter. So I have a 17-year-old daughter, uh, and I've shared this with her, so she knows that this is something I've observed and think about. When she was really young, she was the most intuitive eater in the sense that she wanted, I believe, what her body was craving. And there were days where it was all about protein and there were times that all she wanted was fresh fruit and she never went for the sweets and the, the junky stuff. It just didn't appeal to her. And then I feel she sort of got culturalized and socialized into, she's still a very good eater, but I, I feel like she has lost a little bit of that voice, of, he, of the ability to hear that voice. And I think we all have. I mean, I eat at least two days, yes. two meals a day in front of a computer. Mm -hmm. And we all feel that's great. Place. Hey, I just ate my lunch at my desk. I, I'm not saying we're in, any of us are immune to it. And it's just something we need to work on. And Joyce, you're absolutely right. You know what? I'm thinking of these classes that I used to give to patients. And it's, it's like we're born with this ability to honor our hunger and our fullness. You know, when you, I, I would use the example of an of a infant myself, but even toddlers do this too. You know, I would ask when an infant cries, what do they want? And there's a number of things, but sometimes they're hungry. But, you know, so in, we're born with this ability to do this. We know how to do it, but you're absolutely right. We learn culturally, socially, we unlearn this behavior because we eat mm. for so many other reasons than hunger. We just do. Right. And so after unlearning and tuning out from that hunger and fullness, some people on this call may be thinking to themselves, I have no idea when I'm hungry and full. And so don't feel discouraged if you feel that way. It's all about starting with a practice to tune into that. We all have the ability to do it and tune back into it. It's just kind of like listening to your body's natural urges. And for some reason, as a culture, we like to fight that a lot. So at least with your hunger, try to listen to your body as much as you can. And that signal and that intuitiveness to, to know what your body needs is going to get stronger and it's going to get easier with time if you practice. That's exactly what I was going to say is it, this goes on the list of it's a practice. It's not perfection. It's not a perfect system. It's this is something that I practice and work on probably for the rest of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. We have to eat um, every day, unfortunately. <laughs> so that's what I tell people. We have to eat every day. However you look at that, whether it's a positive, negative, it's overwhelming. The food uh, is a part of our life no matter what. So learning to, to do as best as you can and make it a practice. So I think we're all on that journey. And make it something that we're, we're friends with, right? Being friends with our food and not vilifying it and making an enemy of it. Um, and you, you said something that I want to go back to because uh, here we go, Tori. You ready for like another super softball question? <laughs> here we go. <laughs> <I'm ready. laughs> um, you had commented that you had lunch at your desk today. I don't know what your lunch was and I'm not asking, but we have all had moments, probably thousands of them, when our 
nutrition practice doesn't align with what we want. You know, everybody has had the donut, right? Everybody's yeah. had the, we actually have a core value around 99 walks, which is sometimes you got to eat the cupcake. Um, and oh, I yeah. think one of the, the challenges that so many people uh, suffer or work through or suffer from is sort of the all or nothing, right? I've, I've blown my diet, so therefore I may as well fill in the blanks, right? So that, mm-hmm. there's a long lead up to a question around like, how do we get back on track when we do something that doesn't align and we feel like we have somehow blown it? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that was a big part of when I did work at, in a bariatric practice, I was meeting with, you know, 15 patients individually every day. And that's where a lot of my counseling practice comes from. That was like one of the number one questions I would get is how, you know, say I eat X thing, it's not on plan. How do I let it not unravel everything I've done already? How do I kind of get past that? And there really isn't one perfect answer, of course, just like anything else with nutrition and, and health. But I encourage people to try to have a little bit of a short memory with those things, you know, looking at mm-hmm. zooming out and looking at the big picture as much as possible. The other thing that I think is important to mention here and maybe remind yourselves of if you find yourself in a situation like this where you eat the cupcake and you're feeling guilty, think about what would have happened if you didn't eat the cupcake. And I, I ask you to do that just because many people when they think down that thought process of, okay, if I hadn't had the cupcake, later on it turns into, well, if I ignore my, if I ignore that urge, I'm going to end up eating four cupcakes later down the road. So, you know, it's all about viewing, hey, yeah, did I eat a cupcake? Yes. But is one day, one meal, one even food choice going to undo my success or even really impact my health? No. So it's just about having a short memory and and trying to view nutrition from a half glass full perspective and that every single food has some sort of nutritional value to it. Okay, maybe a cupcake is tough because it's a lot of sugar, but <laughs> there are carbohydrates in there. Your body uses carbohydrates. So trying to, again, like not villainize every food and also have a short memory and say, hey, yeah, I have that thing, but I'm gonna, tonight I'm gonna eat my dinner with protein and veggies and, and kind of balance it out. So. Maybe not the most straightforward answer, but, you know, you can kind of back yourself into something that maybe works for you within those guidelines. Sometimes I try to make a deal with myself. Uh, I don't know what you think of this strategy, but uh, years, years ago, I had a fairly significant amount of weight to lose from my own health and happiness, right? I was not where I should be for, from a, all the nutrients, forget like how I look in a bathing suit, but even from a what was healthy for me. And I, anyway, I would make a deal with myself if I, was, if I was craving something that didn't align with my nutritional goals, I would make a deal with myself that if I still wanted it the next day, I would eat it without guilt. And mm-hmm. I would say like maybe 10% of the time, the next day I still wanted that ice cream cone. And then I just went and got it. But like 80% of the time, those kinds of cravings are momentary and they pass. It's Mm -hmm. really an interesting exercise. Absolutely. And I think that's a great practice, Joyce. You know what? 
any practice, if it works for you, uh, you know, within reason, I tell people, hey, don't don't stop what's working. But something you said just, you know, reminded me that you you also want to. Actually, I lost my train of thought, but I was going to go into villainizing <laughs> foods and and certain things like that. But um, you know, you do, if you're villainizing, you also want to take a zoom out and say, hey, are there certain foods that I'm viewing as this I can't have, do not eat, this is a bad food. You really want to work on that mindset. But, oh, I remember what I was going to say now. Some people, Joyce, may not be able to wait that whole day. Some people may right. find that by that evening, if they haven't had that cupcake, they're feeling out of control or, the, you know, whatever it may be. So even if you feel like, wow, a day is a long time, I even tell people, build in a pause of five to 10 minutes. If you mm, find that you want something, you're craving something. And I, these are emotional cravings we have sometimes. Emotional cravings when we're upset or stressed, we do tend to crave those higher sugar, higher carb items. So there's a reason behind why people villainize these foods. They're often craved for, you know, we often crave cupcakes or sugary things when we're not necessarily physically hungry, but when we're emotionally hungry. And so then, like you said, building in that pause to just reassess, give your, take some deep breaths, you know, just reground yourself for a minute and then you may find that that just was a momentary emotional craving that passes you might find that hey i actually you know the next day comes and i still want that thing and then you can allow yourself to have it without guilt so yeah there's a lot of good information and little nuggets from that um, practice that you use that i think anyone on this call could definitely customize and, and build into their life and I want to be sure because 30 minutes goes really fast. And I think it's just so interesting to be talking with a registered dietitian who works with Nutrisystem around diet culture and a more holistic approach and looking at all of the things. Can you share a little bit about what you've seen in the, in the industry as well as with, uh, specifically with Nutrisystem, if you can, around kind of this changing perspective and how companies like Nutrisystem are helping serve people better? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is something I'm so excited to be a part of is I hope the revolution of the nutrition and weight loss industry is getting away from these really radical, hardcore diets. I mentioned Scarsdale diet earlier on this call. That's one that comes to mind where you're eating, you know, crazy low calories, you're eating below a thousand calories a day. We know as professionals in the nutrition industry, that is not a sustainable practice. It's not healthy. Yet we still have, we still see diets out there that promote that. And so within Nutrisystems programs, what we do in research and development is really try to develop these programs personalized around the group, you know, whether that's a women's plan, a men's plan, really tailoring to make sure there's plenty of protein. That's really important. We're not going below certain calorie levels that could be dangerous to someone in terms of, you know, their long-term weight maintenance, um, you know, building in healthy habits and really messaging around lifestyle as well, things like exercise, hydration, managing stress levels. So yeah, there's a lot shifting in the industry that is more so focused on you as a whole person, not just the foods that you're eating. And that's really the key there is focusing on yourself as a whole uh, and finding a personalized plan that works for you. So I would say one of the the best programs or one of the most popular programs we've launched in the past year was 
our Complete 55 program for women going, you know, in ages 55 and plus. And what we did differently with that plan is front-loaded carbs and calories at the beginning of the day. And so that's one thing, if you're within that population, you're looking to kind of make some changes, whether it's for weight loss or overall health, that's something that, um, you know, within that group uh, research shows is going to be helpful for your overall health, not just, you know, not weight loss alone, but even sleep, not eating right before you go to sleep. So again, long-winded way to explain there's a lot changing and a lot to be excited about in uh, the nutrition and weight loss space, or the health and nutrition space, rather. You literally called it a revolution, and I don't think that's hyperbole. It's I have seen so many shifts in the industry leaders in this space. It's really uh, it's heartening for sure, and I we're nowhere near there yet. Um, but I do think that it's worth people taking another look at the. Um, you know, I'm using air quotes in a podcast, right? But the diet programs that are out there. This is not what they were 20 years ago. And Mm -hmm. there seems to be so much more focus in your programs and others around nutrition, around emotional eating, around feeling better, around moving your body like it's just, it's nothing short of a revolution. So I think there's, there's a lot of room there for a lot of people to take another look. Yes, absolutely. Not not the diets we knew in the 80s, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of building these up to be more than just a diet, a weight loss diet. It's really about feeling what's why do people want to lose weight? Well, some people want to look better, but usually it's to feel better and and to have more, you know, more energy and all of those things. So we want to it's all about the big picture and, and finding what works best for you at the end of the day. I have a last I have a last thought I would like to and I think we're now over time but I really would like to leave people with a final thought on this and you can certainly tell me if you disagree but just keep trying for the people who have struggled and the people who continue to struggle keep trying don't give up if your health is at risk and how you feel is at risk don't give up yeah I I think that's great advice you know you're we are all constant works in progress, myself included. So, you know, I think that's what's so great about this community is to bring people together and realize you're not alone on an island by yourself. We all have these same challenges and struggles. And that sometimes just makes us, it humanizes the the problem, right? It makes us feel more like we have that community. And that's really important too. So lifting others up, making, you know, keeping them motivated, keeping you know, your community motivated and also reaching out when you feel like you don't have it within yourself. Look for that support. You know, it, it's all about just put, putting one foot in front of the other and trying. Literally, like literally and metaphorically around here. Yes. We put one foot in front of the other. Uh, Tori, thank you I so much for being that. here. <laughs> thank you so we much. We have a lot of walking fun. So fun. We'll talk again. Sounds great. Thank you for joining us for today's Walk and Talk. Catch new episodes featuring inspiring guests every week and all the places podcasts live. Until then, I wish you happy trails.